Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and this is The Bible Teachers. We are continuing the search for certainty with Pastor Danny Malenkov. This is the seventh program in the series, so we're moving through it. I hope you're enjoying Pastor Danny's presentations. I'm sure he's got something really interesting to talk with us about today. Hi, Danny. G'day, Barry. What's our topic today? Today, our subject is looking at the Lord's Day. Question, what is the Lord's Day? Why are we looking at this topic? Well, the last time we were together, we discovered that the Lord's Day, according to the Bible, is the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Yet there is a lot of confusion in the world today, in particular in the Christian world, regarding the Lord's Day. And um, so today we want to unpack that all-important subject and discover from the Bible uh, what indeed is the Lord's Day and and what we're invited to do. So this is really following up from our... Our presentation last week. That's right, yeah. We'll be continuing on and, and filling in some more pieces of the puzzle. Sounds interesting. All the best. I'll pass it over to you. Thank you, Barry. Have you ever thought something was the real deal when in actual fact it wasn't? Today's topic, what is the Lord's Day? When I was a little boy, my mother and father made at a point to to seek to give us good, healthy food. And so they wanted us to grow up and to enjoy good health. So myself and my two younger sisters, we had the pleasure and the privilege of enjoying wonderful food, um, the best fruit and vegetables from the markets, without having any junk food at all. My parents didn't believe in buying us junk food, and so whenever somebody would come around, and give us some chocolates or some lollies. It was a real treat. I remember on one occasion, a friend of ours who worked in a chocolate factory came along and gave us all a box of roses each. And we were just uh, thrilled to have these chocolates, my sisters and myself. And I decided that I'd have a few, but I would save the rest for later. And I'd have them little, little now and a little later on. And so I'd want my roses to last, whereas my sisters, they decided they were going to eat all theirs in one hit. Well, I decided to hide my chocolates because I knew if my sisters found my chocolates, they wouldn't be around for very long. I hid my chocolates so well that I couldn't remember where I had left them. And so time passed and I forgot all about my roses chocolates after I gave up looking for them. Until one day I was just going through my bits and pieces there in my cupboard when I stumbled across my roses chocolates. And there they were. My sisters hadn't discovered them. I had hidden them so well. I was so, so pleased. I sat down, opened the box, sat on my bed. I was only a little boy at the time, not sure how old I was, maybe seven or eight or nine, somewhere there. I was only very young. I sat down to eat my chocolates. I opened the first, ready to enjoy this beautiful chocolate, made sure nobody was around to to disturb me or disrupt me, when all of a sudden I was totally shocked. Instead of a chocolate, it was a rock. I was just so upset. I was so angry. I couldn't believe it. I thought to myself, well, wait until I tell the chocolate factory that they ended up putting a rock instead of a chocolate. Who knows, I may get a year's supply of chocolates as a way of compensation. I'd heard of stories like that before. So I decided to open up the second chocolate. And lo and behold, you can guess, it was another rock. I opened up another one, a rock. 
And then I realized it wasn't the chocolate factory that got it all wrong. It was my sisters. They had discovered my box of roses, had eaten all the chocolates, and instead they had put rocks in the wrappings. And so I assumed all was well when it was anything but. Have you ever thought something was real when in actually fact it wasn't? Today we want to take a look at what the Bible says and we want to take a look at history. And we want to take a look at what many, in fact millions, believe to be real but yet it is not real. We understand that the Bible is the truth and God shares the truth with us in his word. So today, once again, we want to open up God's word together to discover what indeed is the Lord's day and the truth on this very important subject. So let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we have your word. We thank you so much that you reveal to us your truth from your word. Father, today we ask and pray that once again, as we open your word, that you will open up our minds and our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may understand and discern what indeed is truth. So bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our previous two presentations, we have discovered that God has given us his law of love. The Ten Commandments are God's law of love. In our previous presentation, we discovered that in the very heart of God's law of love is the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, where God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We discovered that the Sabbath given to us there at the very beginning of time at creation when God created the world, and once again, God gave that to us in the Ten Commandments there in the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. We can read that is a sign that God is our creator. Every time we pause and we keep holy the Sabbath day, we remember that we are created by a loving God. Also, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when Moses, before his departure, recounts the Ten Commandments and, and shares them once again with the children of Israel, he points out that the Sabbath is also a symbol for redemption. It's interesting to note, as we've discovered already, that the, at the end of the six days of creation, after God had finished creating this world in six days, he created Adam and Eve. The Bible says that God finished all of his work and he rested on the seventh day. It's interesting to note that the very same thing took place on that Friday afternoon, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he rested from his work of salvation and he rested on the Sabbath day in the tomb before he was raised on the very first day of the week. So God rested at the end of creation on Friday and so God rested at the end of redemption also on Friday and he rested over the Sabbath day. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, we have the evidence that the Sabbath has remained with mankind. We discovered that in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, God gave us the Sabbath at creation. On Mount Sinai, we have God commanding us to keep holy the Sabbath day through the Ten Commandments. In his life, Jesus worshipped on the Sabbath. In his death, Jesus observed the Sabbath. In his church, in the early church, Jesus told us that 
through his word that the disciples and the early church continued keeping the Sabbath day holy. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that God's last day people will continue to keep the Sabbath day holy. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 14. We have been to Revelation chapter 14 a number of times there where God's final message of love to the world is shared. John writes in Revelation 14 verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Notice, God at the very end of time, is inviting the entire world to worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, to worship the Creator. These words uh, are are taken directly out of the fourth commandment. They're taken from, from the time when God created this world there in Genesis. The Sabbath, in fact, goes beyond God's end time people living at the end of time. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 23, And it shall come to pass that from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So the Bible is clear that even on the earth made new, and that is what Isaiah 66 and verses 23 are referring to, the earth made new, God's people will continue to worship God on the Sabbath, One Sabbath after another, all flesh will come to worship before God. So the Sabbath, given before sin came into the world, when everything was perfect, will continue when sin has been eradicated from this earth and there will only be peace, joy and happiness. The Bible records a powerful discussion that took place between Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea at the time of Christ, and Jesus Christ on the morning of Christ's crucifixion. You may remember these words. They're recorded in John chapter 18 and verse 37. These are the words of Jesus. He says to Pilate, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And now notice Pilate's response to Jesus' statement. Pilate said to him, verse 38, What is truth? What is truth? Pilate had the evidence that Jesus was innocent. Pilate had his wife tell him that in a dream she had received specific instructions that Jesus Christ was innocent and that Pilate was to not interrogate him. Pilate was to let him go. He was an innocent man. Pilate's conscience told him that Jesus was innocent. He had all the evidence that clearly demonstrated that Jesus was innocent. In fact, Pilate himself said, I find no fault in him. Yet Pilate condemned Jesus to death. Pilate went with that which was popular rather rather than that which was truthful, that which was right. The Apostle Paul, when it comes to truth, had this to say, In Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, we read, The Apostle Paul says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. As far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, truth was paramount. And 
he was not willing not to declare the whole counsel of God. So today, together, we want to discover the whole counsel of God. We want to discover the truth regarding worship. We want to discover where did Sunday worship come from? How did Sunday worship make its way into the Christian church? When we have discovered all the way through that the Sabbath and only the Sabbath is the day that God has set aside for worship from Genesis to Revelation, that is abundantly clear. So where did Sunday come from? Has the devil tried to cover up the truth about God's holy day? Have millions been deceived by a counterfeit or a lie? Can we even know the truth? Notice what Jesus said in John 8, verses 31 and 32. The Bible says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Notice Jesus made it clear that we can know the truth, the wonderful truth that sets us free. And there is nothing worse than being taken in by a lie, than being deceived by a lie. Jesus, the Bible says, is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says that God's word is truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. So God's word sets us free from deceptions, from lies, from counterfeits, from all things that will take us away from Jesus and his truth because Jesus and his truth sets us free. Now, when it comes to Sunday in the New Testament, there are eight passages. There are eight passages that refer to Sunday, the first day of the week in the New Testament. The Bible doesn't speak of, of Sunday. It doesn't have the word Sunday. It has the word first day of the week. Just like there is no such thing as Saturday in the Bible, there is the Sabbath, which is mentioned, or the seventh day. There are eight scriptures in the New Testament concerning the first day of the week, and not one of them tell us that Christ or the disciples changed the day of worship from the seventh to the first day of the week. The New Testament clearly demonstrates that Jesus and the early church kept the seventh day holy, the Sabbath day. In fact, the renowned and widely respected Catholic theologian James Cardinal Gibbons, who passed away in 1921, he has shared these words in his epic, The Faith of Our Fathers, page 561. Notice these words from James Cardinal Gibbons. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. Very clear. You remember the words of Jesus that he shared in Matthew 24, that incredible sermon that we have looked at in the past where Jesus shared the signs that would precede his coming, the signs that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem, in particular the destruction of the temple. Notice these words in Matthew 24 and verse 20, Jesus speaking, And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. These are interesting words that Jesus shares. Jesus here is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem and that, before the destruction, there would be a sign 
for the Christians to leave the city so that they would not die in that terrible destruction that would come to pass that we know came to pass in 70 AD. So Jesus here, almost 40 years after his resurrection, after he goes to heaven, he makes it clear that Christians will continue to keep the Sabbath day holy and pray, Jesus says, that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So as far as Jesus was concerned, the Sabbath was to remain well and truly after his departure. So how and when did the change take place from Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week? Well, it was a long process, and there's a lot that can be shared on this subject. We don't have time to get into all the details on this program. However, I had the opportunity to read a book that was published based on the doctoral dissertation of Dr. Samuel Bakioki. The book is entitled From Sabbath to Sunday, A Historical Investigation of the Rise of Sunday Observance in Early Christianity. Now, this book was published in 1977, and it is probably the most prominent or probably the most conclusive um, book that we have today on how this change took place from Saturday to Sunday in the Christian church. Dr. Bakioki did his studies there in the Pontifical Gregorian University, and he became the first Protestant to graduate from the Pontifical Gregorian University, and he graduated with distinction. And he has shared how this change took place. I would like to just briefly summarize what Dr. Bakioki has written in his book. Firstly, He makes it clear, abundantly clear, that based on the evidence, and he had the opportunity to study the the most solid evidence that we have on this subject there at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. He came to the conclusion after his studies that the first century church kept the seventh day Sabbath. Very clear from scripture, very very clear from the historical documents. That he researched. Secondly, he discovered that in many parts of the Christian world, both Saturday and Sunday were observed from the second to the fifth centuries AD. You see, during that first century and into the second century in particular, uh, the Jews managed to get themselves into quite a bit of hot water with the Romans. And so in order for the Christians not to be caught up in, in the persecution that the Jews were experiencing from the Roman authorities, they made a decision in some parts, not in all parts of the Roman Empire, but in some parts of the Roman Empire, Empire to not only keep Saturday, the seventh day, as a holy day, H-O-L-Y, but that they would also observe Sunday as a holiday, a fun day, a family day, and that way they would distinguish themselves from the Jews who also kept the Sabbath or Saturday, the seventh day of the week, as their holy day. A lot more can be said on this subject, but that is a sufficient summary of, of that point. Thirdly, pagan sun worship led the church in Rome to change Sabbath to Sunday. Now, how did this take place? Well, before we get to that, let me just share with you um, what one historian has noted. 
Almost all the churches throughout the world celebrate the sacred mysteries, that is, the Lord's Supper, on the Sabbath of every week. Yet the Christians of Alexandria and at Rome, on accounts of some ancient tradition, have ceased to do this. Now, what was taking place? You see, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Rome became the center for Christianity and the center for Christian influence. Rome was also the center of paganism and at the heart of at the heart of the pagan religion was sun worship. And so we have paganism and sun worship mixing in with Christianity there in Rome and Alexandria and that being dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Notice this interesting quote from the Bible Encyclopedia, page 561. Sabbath, a Hebrew word signifying rest, Sunday was a name given by the heathens to the first day of the week because it was the day on which they worshipped the sun. Why did the church in Rome change from Saturday to Sunday? As I've pointed out, it was heavily influenced by pagan sun worship and Rome being the center for paganism and sun worship being at the heart of the pagan religion. But not all parts of the Roman Empire made this change. This change happened gradually, as we will discover. Roman Christians came to the conclusion that they would honor Sunday and keep it holy in honor of the resurrection of Jesus. Later, the church renamed Sunday and called it the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus resurrected. Most Christians today refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Yet Jesus himself said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And in Exodus 20, we read that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Not Sunday, but the Sabbath, the seventh day, is the Lord's Day. Another reason and another, another way in which this transference from Saturday to Sunday came into the church was that government laws, Roman government laws, were made in order to encourage Sunday worship. Constantine the Great, you may have heard of him, he was the first emperor to become a Christian. He believed that God had specifically saved his life and given him victory there in 312 AD, there at the place where a significant battle took place, Milvian Bridge between himself and another Roman emperor, Maxentius. And Constantine shares that in a vision or a dream the night before the battle, he was told very clearly, you will conquer in the sign of the cross. He was instructed to put a cross on the soldiers' shields as well as on their standards and that he would win the victory. Well, October 28, 312, Constantine did win the victory and he became a Christian. In 321 AD, a major event took place in the Roman Empire that solidified Sunday as the day of worship. You see, Constantine had a dilemma. How could Constantine unite his empire? He had many pagans, sun-worshipping pagans as well. By now, uh, Christianity had grown astronomically there in the Roman Empire. And so Constantine 
wondered how could he unite the pagans and the Christians. And he came up with a brilliant plan. And um, theologians and historians today still marvel at this incredible plan of Constantine. On March 7, 321 AD, Constantine passed the first ever civil Sunday law. Notice these words. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all the shops be closed. So this is the first Sunday law that we have in history. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire by 324 AD. Rome became Christian, but sadly, as many historians have pointed out, Christianity became Roman. And many pagan influences and teachings, nowhere to be found in the Bible, came into the Christian church, including the day of worship, which had moved from Saturday, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week. And finally, the Church of Rome forbade Sabbath worship. Notice these words um, that come to us from the Council of Laodicea some four years after Constantine issued the Sunday law. These words are recorded as shared by Sylvester, Bishop of Rome at the time, who changed the title of the first day, calling it the Lord's Day. This is where we have the Lord's Day mentioned for the very first time in historical documents. These words from the Council of Laodicea in 325, where the church says, Christians shall not Judaize, that is, they shall not keep the Sabbath and be idle on Saturday. But the Lord's Day, speaking of the first day, they shall especially honor and as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, notice these words, they are found Judaizing or keeping holy the seventh day, Sabbath, they shall be shut out from Christ. So as you can see, the church... The Christian church sadly joined in with Constantine in in making of no effect God's law of making of no effect the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. You can read in the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, and I have this in my possession, these words. Question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why then do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Notice the response. We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. So here we have it very clearly. The Church recognizes and admits that it, through its own authority, has changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Notice these words from a prominent Catholic theologian by the name of Carl Keating, written in his book Catholicism and Fundamentalism, published in 1988. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. And that's exactly What the church says today, that Sunday is to be kept by Christians in honor of the resurrection. I could give you many, many more quotes uh, from the church of Rome itself and other historical documents that point out this very fact that I have shared with you only briefly. So how and when 
Did all this take place? It took place many centuries ago. But the Bible interestingly predicted some two and a half thousand years ago, God predicted some two and a half thousand years ago that this change would take place. When we come back in just a moment, we will unpack what God said would take place that we have just read. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word. .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Welcome back. We ended the first half of this presentation by discovering that the Church of Rome has admitted over and over again that it, through its own authority, has changed the day of worship from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday. The book of Daniel tells us that this would indeed take place. Daniel, who wrote some two and a half thousand years ago, wrote these words under inspiration. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, or that is this power that would assume the right and the prerogative that only belongs to God when it comes to his word, when it comes to his law. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. Notice those words again. At the very heart of verse 25 in Daniel chapter 7, and shall intend or think to change times and law. Notice God predicted Two and a half thousand years ago that the time would come when there would be a power, a system, a human system here on earth that would seek to tamper with God's holy law. The Apostle Paul, some 500 years later, he came along and he reminded the Christian believers that this indeed would take place. Notice these words that the Apostle Paul wrote in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, and he's speaking of the second coming of Jesus, day, capital D, will not come unless the falling away, or that word in the original Greek is the word apostasia, which we get the word in English apostasy, which means falling away, comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There is so much we can unpack concerning these two verses that the Apostle Paul shares pregnant with meaning. But the one point that we want to take a look at right now is that there would come a a time when there would be a falling away. There would be an apostasy in the church, a falling away from Bible truth, a falling away from following God's holy law, and that there would be a power, there would be a system that would oppose itself against God and would sit in the temple of God or amongst the people of God claiming to be God on earth. The Bible is clear. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his very own finger. No person has the right to change God's holy law. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, in relation to the Ten Commandments. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice Jesus is absolutely clear that not one dot, not one jot, not one tittle, nothing will be removed from his holy law until everything is fulfilled. And Jesus came to show us the purpose, the meaning, the principles, the high and holy principles behind each and every one of the Ten Commandments as he lived them out in his life. Martin Luther challenged the Church of Rome some 500 years ago to stand on sola scriptura, meaning the Bible and the Bible alone. As far as Martin Luther was concerned, the most important thing for a Christian was to stand on a thus saith the Lord, not a thus saith the church or thus saith a person or a thus saith a king or a queen, but a thus saith the Lord, sola scriptura. The church put together and commissioned what has been called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, a church council that sat and, um, and, and, and did its work between 1545 and 1563. And its main purpose over the 25 sessions uh, that it deliberated was to decide whether the tradition or Bible would be the rule of faith for the church. There were many issues discussed at the Council of Trent, many significant issues that were discussed. However, one of the most important um, reasons why the Roman Catholic Church brought together the Council of, of Trent was to decide on this very issue of tradition or the Bible, which one would be the rule of faith for the church. The Council of Trent, in fact, had two main objectives. The first was to condemn the principles and doctrines of Protestantism. And secondly, to clarify the doctrines of the Catholic Church in all disputed points. 
The Church concluded that both Scripture and tradition were equally important. The Church, it said, was the ultimate interpreter of Scripture. Notice these words coming from the Church there at the Council of Trent in 1562 towards the end of its deliberation. We have these interesting words as they're quoted by H.H. Holtzman in his book Canon and Tradition. Finally, at the last opening on the 18th of January 1562, all hesitation was set aside. The Archbishop of Reggio made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above Scripture. The authority of the Church could therefore not be bound to the authority of the Scriptures. Notice why. Because the Church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday not by command of Christ, but by its own authority. So the church made a decision there at the Council of Trent that as far as it was concerned, tradition was more clear and more safe than Bible truth, and that Bible truth must be interpreted in light of the church's teachings. Notice what Jesus said concerning tradition and truth. Mark chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Jesus' words, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Notice, as far as God is concerned, the commandments of God are paramount. They are supreme in the life of a Christian. However, even in Jesus' day, the religious leaders had set aside the clear commandments of God in order to uphold and abide by their own man-made traditions. What did Jesus say? For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. You and I today find ourselves in a time when we need to choose between truth or tradition. We must choose who will follow, whether we will follow Jesus Christ or whether we will follow a human institution, whether our rule of faith will be the Bible or whether it will be tradition, whether we will be part of God's end-time people who keep all of God's Ten Commandments, including the one where God said, Remember, or we will abide by that which the rest of the world or the majority today abide by. Today, the majority are heading down one road, but the minority are heading down a very different road. You remember the words of Jesus when he talked about the two roads. One was a narrow path. One was a very wide path. There are many, Jesus said, that go in through the wide gate, down the wide path, but there are few who seek to follow that narrow path But the narrow path, my friend, leads upward. The narrow path leads to Jesus. Sadly, the truth is the majority have never been right. If we take a look at history, Bible history, in the time of Noah, were the majority right? You know the truth. The majority were well and truly wrong. Sadly, they were wrong. In the time of Jesus, were the majority right? Once again, The majority were not right. The Bible says in the end of time, once again, it will not be the majority 
who we are to turn to, but the minority, those the Bible refers to as the remnant or those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter had to say in Acts chapter 5 and verse 25, verse 29. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Notice Peter was clear. Peter and the other apostles were very clear. When it comes to who to obey, they said, We ought to obey God rather than man. I came across this beautiful poem. Not sure who wrote it, but the words are just so beautiful, so precious. And they speak to me and they speak to all of us. Notice these words. What says the Bible, the blessed Bible to me? The teachings of men so often mislead me. What says the Bible, the blessed Bible to me? This my only question be. What says the Bible, the blessed Bible to me? Don't you love those words? Isn't that just a beautiful poem that says it all? It matters not what I say. It matters not what you say. It matters not what anybody says. The only thing that matters at the end of the day is what God says. What says the Bible, the blessed Bible to me? You see, what God says, that alone holds water. Everything else is shifting sand. We need to build our lives on the rock, Jesus Christ. We need to build our lives on the spiritual truths of the Bible. For the Bible alone will stand the test of time. You remember those words that we meditated upon right at the very beginning of our message today? Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. And you remember the words? And the truth will do what? It will set you free. Jesus' precious truth sets us free. You may be thinking, well, I never knew this, Danny. I had no idea that the Bible does not speak of Sunday as God's holy day. I just assumed that the Sabbath was Sunday. I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't realize it was so important to God. I feel really awful. What am I supposed to do? Well, there's good news, my friend. Notice these beautiful words shared by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, or as one version, I think it's the King James Version puts it, winked at. But now God commands all men everywhere to repent. When we don't know any better, when we are living up to all the light that we have, when we are being faithful to God and his word to the best of our knowledge and ability, God sees that as an act of worship from the heart. And and he commends us and he loves us for it and he accepts worship from the heart. Even though you may have been worshiping God on the first day of the week, keeping the first day of the week holy, going to church on the first day of the week. You did not know that this was not God's will for your life. You did not know that man had changed the day of worship and how significant it was to God. But today you have discovered the truth. And during these past couple of presentations, you have discovered the truth concerning God's law, in particular 
God's Sabbath day. And today you want to make a decision to follow God, to be loyal and faithful to Christ. And the good news is that God overlooks our times of ignorance. He overlooks or he winks at our ignorance, at the things that we don't know. But when we do know, then God invites us to follow him. You remember the words of Jesus in John 14, 15, where Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. So because of our love for Jesus, we want to obey him. Because of our love for Jesus, we want to enter into his Sabbath rest. And we want to rest in his care and his keeping. Today, God is inviting you. God is inviting me. God is inviting the entire world to worship Jesus Christ, the creator and the redeemer. Notice these words once again from the heart of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, this is an appeal given by God in a loud voice. You remember those words, loud in the original language that the Bible, the New Testament was written in the Greek is the word mega. Uh, great, loud, mere, loud voice, fauna, in a great, loud megaphone voice. These words are resounding throughout the entire world. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him. Notice these words, and worship him who made heaven, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. God is inviting his people all around the world. God is inviting the inhabitants of the entire world, regardless of what their culture may be, what their religion may be, where they're from, what their nationality is. God is inviting the inhabitants of the entire globe at the end of time to worship the Creator God. And each Sabbath day we come together and we worship God as our Creator. Each Sabbath day we come together, we worship God as our Redeemer. We, When we rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath day of the week, we recognize that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. But instead, we rest by faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on Calvary's mountain. We rest in his grace. We rest in his love. We rest in his care. We recognize that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And we receive the blessings that God has promised to those who will enter into his Sabbath rest. What a blessing. What a blessing, my friend. When God is handing out his blessings, I don't want to be at the back of the queue. I want to be at the front of the queue to receive those precious blessings. And the Sabbath, the Bible is clear, was blessed by God and given to mankind to be a blessing. In 2010, I had the privilege of going to several of the Reformation lands there in Western Europe had the opportunity of going to Germany and traveling in the footsteps of Martin Luther, the one who made a stand some 500 years ago. Had the opportunity of going to the city of Worms, um, there where in 1521 the Diet of Worms was held and Martin Luther was asked to give an account for his writings and his teachings. He was invited by the church to recant or to repent of all that he had said, all that he had shared that had contradicted what the established church of the time taught. 
1521, these famous words were shared by Martin Luther. And there in the city of Worms, where Martin Luther made his stand, is this plaque there that appears on the ground. And it's in German. And although I don't know German, I could clearly read the words. Here I stand. I can do no other. And on another, on another, um, in another place, we have the words, Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Notice the text of Martin Luther's words. These were at the end of what he shared. But notice what preceded. Martin Luther shared before, before the, the most powerful individuals there in Western Europe at the time. These words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Powerful words. Powerful words that have given so much courage and hope to countless millions down through the centuries. Here I stand on sola scriptura. Here I stand on God's word alone. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. May God help you, my friend. May God help me. May God help us all to stand on God's word alone. Martin Luther in 1521 at the Diet of Worms before men of power was willing to put his life on the line. He was willing to stand up for Jesus. He was willing to stand up for the one who is the way, the truth and the life. Notice what Jesus shared. He would one day stand up for Martin Luther and all those that put their faith and trust in him and make a stand for his truth. Notice these words. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore, whoever confesses me or makes a stand before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Notice the promise of Jesus. These are Jesus' words, my friend. Jesus is clear. Those who confess him before men, those who make a stand, a bold stand for the truth before men, Jesus Christ, when he comes, he will make a stand on their behalf before his Father in heaven. But those who do not, sadly, Jesus will have to turn away from them and say, I am sorry, I never knew you. You never made a stand for me. You were not bold and willing by my grace and through my strength to make a stand. And I cannot stand for you right now. Jesus is inviting us to make a stand today. He is inviting us to make a stand for the Sabbath, to enjoy the blessings of the Sabbath, to enter into the Sabbath rest, the Sabbath that Christ gave to us at the very beginning of time there in the Garden of Eden, as we've discovered, the Sabbath that we will continue to observe 
from one Sabbath to another in the earth made new all the way through. We will be reminded for all of eternity, all mankind that will be saved will be reminded Sabbath by Sabbath that we are there because we were created by a loving God, that we are there because we have been redeemed by a loving God. I can just picture the moment when Jesus preaches that first Sabbath sermon on the new earth when he raises his hands, those nail-pierced hands. We will all realize the cost in me, in you, in all of us being there in, on that earth made new. Jesus appeals to you. He appeals to me. Jesus appeals to our collective hearts. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. We are not saved because we keep the commandments. Jesus says, because you have been saved, because I have redeemed you, I invite you to show your love towards me, to show that you honor me, to show that I am Lord of your life by keeping my commandments, including the one that reminds you that I am your creator and I am your redeemer, the precious Sabbath command. So my friend, will you choose today to stand on God's word rather than man's traditions? My friend, today will you choose to keep holy Jesus' Sabbath day, for he is Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord's day is not Sunday. The Lord's day is the Sabbath day. The Lord, the Lord your God. I would like to pray for you right now, for I know that this can be a very difficult decision. You may have work. You may have a church that you belong to that is not worshipping on the Sabbath. You may have family. You may have friends who will oppose you. I know that this can be a very, very difficult decision. But I do know that Jesus will give you the strength, for he has promised. He has promised that all things are possible through him. He will strengthen you. If you make a stand for Jesus today, I can promise you, because Jesus himself said it, when he comes, he will make a stand for you. I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray that God will give you the strength, the power, to enter into the blessed Sabbath rest that Jesus invites you to come to. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much for Jesus. We want to thank you for his precious love. We want to thank you for his precious Sabbath gift that he has given to us. O oh Lord, there are many, I'm sure, who are listening to this message who are not aware of, of how the enemy has come in and how he has tampered with and changed and altered your holy day, seeking to take away from the blessings that you have associated with it. But Lord, today we have made a decision. We have made a collective decision, I pray, to honor you, Lord, to follow you. And I pray for each person that, that you will bless them and guide them and, and enable them to fulfill their decision to be loyal to you and like Martin Luther, to make a stand for you. And as you protected Martin Luther, as you blessed him, as you guided him, as you strengthened him, so too you will strengthen each one of us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 